You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. NetSpectre is a new speculative execution proof of concept. Australia's Electoral Commission says there were no signs of hacking recent by-elections. U.S. states remain concerned about election hacking. Missouri Senator McCaskill confirms that Fancy Bear made an unsuccessful attempt to access her staff's network. Russian threats to power grids. Industrial espionage continues to go after corporate IP. And use you can news about JPay. We know you're asking for a friend. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, July 30th, 2018. Researchers at Austria's Technische Universität Graz have described another Spectre-class speculative execution hack. They call this one NetSpectre, a CPU speculative execution hack that can read arbitrary memory over a network. Unlike the other Spectre exploits that have been described over the past several months, NetSpectre doesn't require the attacker to get the victims to download and run malicious code on their machine. Instead, it's a remote hack. NetSpectre achieves its effects by probing network ports. The good news amid the bad is twofold. First, NetSpectre's data exfiltration speeds are slow, very slow, only about 15 bits per hour for attacks on data stored in the CPU's cache that are carried out over a network connection. Second, the mitigations that help stop Spectre version 1 should also work against NetSpectre. If you're in a mood to worry, Bleeping Computer suggests an analogy with Rowhammer attacks. Those saw increasing exfiltration speeds as researchers spent more time on them, and they also saw barriers to entry drop. Still, on this one, the glass looks half full. Election hacking and influence operations remain in the news. In Australia, where authorities and public opinion have tended to worry about Chinese influence, it appears that the recent by-elections went off without a hitch. The Australian Electoral Commission says the country's voting infrastructure showed no signs of having been subjected to any hacking. Parliament and the government, however, aren't disposed to rest easy, and protecting elections continues to be a matter of concern, deliberation, and debate. In the U.S., various state election officials are expressing concern over their system's vulnerabilities. Wisconsin and Montana are among the worried, 
with Montana officials now saying they saw some signs of Russian probing during the 2016 elections. More immediately, Fancy Bear is thought to have debuted in the midterms, as Senator McCaskill, a Democrat of Missouri, has confirmed that there was a GRU attempt to gain access to her network. She said that the attempt was unsuccessful and that she's outraged. She added that Russian President Putin is a thug and she doesn't care if he knows she thinks so. Exactly what Fancy Bear was up to in Senator McCaskill's system isn't clear because her staff and investigators are being fairly tight-lipped about the whole matter, apart, of course, from noting Vladimir Vladimirovich's thuggishness, but it appears likely that it was the usual fishing expedition. Observers draw a lesson from the McCaskill case. The most vulnerable points in the U.S. political system, at least from the point of influence operations, appear to be its campaigns and the staffs who run them. It's worth reviewing the different activities people have in mind when they talk about election hacking. What we might call election hacking proper is direct interference with either the data or availability of electronic voting systems. That's the sort of thing the Australian Electoral Commission didn't find. Then there's reconnaissance, snooping into electronic voting systems, accessing voter data, and so on. That's the sort of incident some U.S. state election officials are reporting. A somewhat different kind of cyber attack is accessing campaign data, usually emails and usually through social engineering, in the service of influence operations. In this case, the attacker is interested in finding and releasing material that's either discreditable or can be framed as such. This is what Fancy Bear is alleged to have done to the Clinton presidential campaign. A fourth kind of election hack involves trolling, often with a fake persona and automated bots, as the St. Petersburg-based Information Research Agency has done. The aim here is to influence public opinion. And finally, of course, there's fake news and disinformation, planted and disseminated in more or less traditional ways. In general, U.S. officials think there's a lower degree of Russian activity directed toward election hacking and influence operations during the current midterm election season than was observed in 2016. Instead, it's believed that Russian intelligence services are devoting more attention to the power grid. Observers find this disturbing. Temporary outages, which might not have much more effect than an ice storm, or perhaps not even as much, are worrisome. A number of security experts have advised a keep-calm-and-carry-on view of this level of disruption. But simply causing a power outage that affects part of the grid for a few hours is much less serious than an attack that damaged or destroyed difficult-to-replace power generation systems. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security demonstrated the potential effects of such an attack in its 2017 Aurora tests at the Idaho National Laboratory. In that demonstration, the rapid out-of-phase cycling of protective relays was shown to cause physical damage to generators and induction motors. That sort of attack would be of greater concern than a temporary outage. Last week's report from the U.S. National Counterintelligence and Security Center remains the topic of much chatter. That report described extensive foreign, especially Russia, collection against intellectual property. Politico describes increased espionage against California tech industry targets, where the new Gilded Age marriage of progressive hipster sensibility and buccaneer capitalism have not exactly produced a culture of security. Facebook and Twitter have recently fallen out of favor with investors and speculators. Analysts connect their issues, especially Facebook's record-setting market cap freefall last week, to concern that their user communities have either begun to plateau or entered a period of decline. 
A Washington Post op-ed sees the downside of the network effects that build the social media platform and put it this way. The ghost of MySpace is haunting social media. Facebook and Twitter also continue to struggle with content moderation, and that too seems a difficult problem without solutions that will satisfy a majority of users. Finally, we are shocked, shocked to report that convicts are stealing. You won't believe it, but guests of the governor of Idaho are abusing their access to JPay to accumulate lots of credits they can spend for games, email services, tunes, and the like. Also, educational services and positive entertainment, although how much of these are actually consumed is unclear. JPay is a tablet-based system designed to give inmates limited and healthy connectivity to the outside world, where their friends and family can not only communicate with them, but also post money to their accounts that they can use for JPay credits. More than 300 inmates in Idaho correctional facilities have succeeded in hacking JPay to jack credits up to almost a quarter million dollars, which is a lot in a prison economy where wages, according to Wired, run from 10 to 90 cents an hour. It costs 47 cents to send an email on J, and as much as three and a half bucks to download a tune. So the Freakonomic incentives are aligned, so that signs point to hacking. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland. He's also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Uh, we had an article come by from Scientific American, and it was called, How Close Are We Really to Building a Quantum Computer? 
you and I revisit this topic from time to time, and uh, I, I've joked with you that uh, quantum computing seems to me sometimes kind of like fusion energy, where uh, no matter when you ask, it's always 20 years away. But uh, <laughs> does, it, does it seem like we're getting closer? When might we see some real practical applications for this? So first of all, you know that people are very concerned about the possibility of quantum computers because uh, if a real quantum computer were ever built, a large enough quantum computer were ever built, it would be able to break uh, all the public key cryptography currently being used on the Internet. Hmm. So obviously, uh, we don't want to be caught unprepared. Uh, it would be really a, a, a terrible thing if, a, if a, from the point of view of security, if a quantum computer came out a year from now and we were just caught completely uh, you know, flat-footed and didn't have replacements in line to uh, replace our, our public key crypto systems. And so people really do want to know uh, how feasible it might be to construct a large-scale quantum computer over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And a lot of people are, are seriously looking at this. What, what I think uh, seems to have happened more recently is that there has been a lot of interest from industry. Uh, several companies now, including Google and Microsoft, now have significant efforts in quantum computing. And I think this is making people uh, a little bit more worried that quantum computer might be closer than we previously thought. Now, is this is it fair comparing this to something like the Manhattan Project, where if one nation state had significant advances in quantum computing, that would give them a you know a global advantage uh, over other nations? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I would say that if a um, uh, if an intelligence agency in a in a in this particular country uh, had access to a quantum computer, and other intelligence agencies were not aware or didn't have access to their own quantum computer then uh, the results could be really devastating, right? That, Like I said, that would allow one country to be able to essentially decrypt uh, transmissions that the other country was sending over the Internet, uh, even without the other country knowing it, and uh, that could be really uh, very significant. Uh, of course, the situation will be a little bit different if you had uh, a quantum computer being built publicly, if it were built by a company, for example, uh, and then everybody, they would publish it and then everybody would know about it. The situation would be a little bit different, but it could definitely give a big advantage to whoever is able to solve this problem first. How much is this going to change uh, how we approach computer science? Is, are, are there fundamental differences in, in the way that these computers function that, that you, for example, your students are going to have to uh, come at this from a different direction? That's a really good question. And uh, it's funny, I, ha I haven't really uh, heard people talk about that a lot before. I, I think, you know, my, my guess is that if and when quantum computers first come out, they're going to still remain uh, very niche. I don't think we're going to see uh, desktop quantum computers, personal quantum computers uh, anytime soon, uh, in part because they're likely to be very expensive and very large at first, uh, but also because I think most people uh, wouldn't have a need for quantum computers. Uh, I think quantum computers are especially good at particular types of problems that uh, cryptographers are interested in and also some other problems that physicists are interested in, for example. But the average user might not be really interested in having a quantum computer available to them. But thinking ahead longer term, when quantum computing, if quantum computing becomes the norm, then absolutely it would require people to learn uh, basic quantum mechanics in order to understand what's going on. It would require people to think a little bit differently when they program because programming for a quantum computer is, is uh, different and maybe more challenging than programming on a regular computer. And so, uh, yeah, there's definitely going to have to uh, be a, a shift in the way computer science is taught if quantum computers ever become a, a reality like that. And hopefully by then, both you and I will be retired. <laughs> I guess it depends on when they come out. <laughs> right, right, exactly. All right. But, yeah. well, as always. But it, but it certainly makes for interesting times. Yeah, absolutely, so. absolutely. All right, Jonathan Katz, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.